Hello, and welcome to Biology Fun and Facts, the podcast where I show you that you actually love biology. You just maybe didn't know it yet. I'm Julia Haises, a biologist, and completely head over heels for all things biology. And today, we'll be keep talking about my favorite words. They're weird, they're nice. I hope last episode you had a lot of fun and you learned something new and fun. So we'll keep going from there. We had stopped at organelles, which are the subunits of the cell. But then I remembered that I forgot two very good words that I really, really like, but I forgot to tell you. And those words are autotrophs and heterotrophs. And those are the ways that organisms can acquire food. So autotrophs, auto means self and trophos means food, nourishment, comes from Greek. So autotrophs means the organisms that can produce their own food. So from inorganic things, molecules, they can produce organic ones that will sustain them. A classical example is plants. The gorgeous plants can produce their own nourishment, their own food, and therefore they are the basis of food chains. Because heterotroph, so hetero means different, cannot produce their own food. They need to get the food from somewhere. And that somewhere, usually, is another living thing. So heterotrophs depend on autotrophs to incorporate the inorganic molecules into organic forms so that they can eat it and by eating it, also eat whoever made them. Or you can be a heterotroph that eats other heterotrophs. That's also a possibility. Those are carnivores. So those are very cool words, and they have a lot of meaning, and they are cute. And it doesn't matter if you're a prokaryote or an eukaryote, you can be either an autotroph or a heterotroph. So those are two pairs of words that go very well together. At least I think so. Okay, so that was my, oh my god, my list of 100 words is not long enough session. <laughs> now I'll go back to the original list. <laughs> so now we'll get to a whole new session of words that are words that are not only related to biology, but related to evolution. And evolution, as you probably know, is my favorite thing. So we already said that evolutions just change. We even talked about some kinds of evolution. And now I would like to talk about analogy and homology. And those are very fun words because they are related to evolution and they show us that things are not always as it seems and that we have to look at evolution with a very critical eye and always remember that things don't have a goal. There's no goal in evolution and there is no foresight in it. So you don't evolve something so that one day it might become something else. Things have to be useful or at least neutral the moment they appear. So from that, we can talk about analogy and homology. An analogy means structures that are very similar in either shape or function or both, but they don't have a single evolutionary origin. They are the result of convergent evolution. One very good example of that are wings. 
wings serve the same purpose, flying. But insect wings, bat wings, bird wings, and pterodactyl wings are all very different, even though they serve the same purpose. And that's because they appeared in different evolutionary contexts. And we will talk more about wings on the next episode, I hope it's the next episode, because otherwise I'll have three episodes just about words, which I mean, I will love, but I'm pretty sure you hate. <laughs> so, yeah, so wings, next episode. And homology, on the other hand, it's a structure that is shared by a series of species because the ancestral of the species had it, even though it doesn't have to serve the same purpose in all those species. One example is our appendices. We have them, we don't use them for much, as far as I know at least, but other species of mammals have huge appendices. Appendices, I don't know that are super important for herbivore because that's where you'll have the fermentation of the leaves and that can be essential to get all the nutrients from it. So we both have it, it's homologous. Another example are the bones in our hands and in the fins of whales or the hoof of a horse. All of these structures have the same bones but in very different conformations because they are used for very different things. And that's also homology. That's super cool. That shows us that in evolution, sometimes you can get to a similar result from a similar problem. And when you have different problems, but the same tools, you can get to as different structures as a hook and a fin. I don't know. The whales have fins? That also a fin? I don't know. Well, you understand, right? Please tell me the right name for the thing that I'm talking about. Thank you. <laughs> This next set of words is more about how the genetics of an organism or of a group can be shaped by what happens to its populations. So the first one is evolutionary bottleneck, which is just a huge sudden reduction in the genetic diversity of a population or species. Usually that's because of some kind of catastrophe. So let's suppose it's a group of bugs that lives near a volcano and then the volcano erupts and two thirds of the population of bugs suddenly died because it was covered by lava. Or a meteor falls onto Earth and destroys an environment and the animals that live there. Or you have a flooding of a region where a big part of a population lived. So usually something big and an ecological catastrophe. And that kind of situation can lead to a huge reduction in the genetic diversity. And as we will see soon, genetic diversity is very important for the survival of the species because that's how new mutations appear and new adaptations come to be and get selected. So that can be very drastic and it can lead to another fun word, which is founder effect, which is basically the effect that you have when a population has a very reduced genetic diversity because it was founded by very few individuals, either because there was a bottleneck or because of something else. Maybe a couple of the individuals just migrated somewhere else and started a new population or you reintroduced a species after a long time of extinction in their natural habitat. Anything like that can cause the founder effect. And that means that you will keep having a low genetic diversity even if the population grows a lot. Because there were so few individuals in the beginning that even if you grow the population by a lot, by 10 or 20 times, you will still have very little diversity. Which leads us to another cool effect that can happen in small populations mainly, which is genetic drift. Because when you have small populations, random effects 
are more likely to have a big impact because you will not have numbers to counteract the randomness. So if you have 20% of individuals with beneficial mutation, that can mean very different things in a population with five individuals versus a population with a thousand individuals. Because the chances of the one individual dying that has the beneficial muta mutation in the population with five individuals is way higher than the chances of 20% of the individuals of a population of a thousand. That means 200 individuals would have to die for that beneficial mutation to disappear. So genetic drift is this randomness in evolution that means that the frequency of alleles can be changed due to random processes. So something random can happen, like that one individual dying, or one individual with a detrimental mutation having a lot of babies, just by chance as well. And that keeps on the population due to this randomness. And that's way more common in small populations. And that brings us to another very fun word, that's speciation. And that just means that a new species arises from a previous one. Events of speciation, for instance, is when great apes diverged from monkeys, or when Homo, the genus, diverged from great apes, and things like that. Or from chimps and bonobos, I guess. So it happens a lot, it happens all the time, and it can happen in very different ways. Two types of speciation that I really like are allopatric and sympatric speciations. So this patric suffix means place, so where the population or the new species live. So allopatric speciation is when the new species that divergent don't live in the same space. So for instance, if a river cuts the habitat of a squirrel and now the squirrels that live on each side of the river cannot interbreed anymore, and then they diverge and become two different species, that would be allopatric speciation. On the other hand, you can have sympatric speciation, which means that the diverging species will live in the same geographical space. And then you have the issue of, well, if they are in the same geographical space and they used to be the same species, how are they becoming different ones? And that can be due to, for instance, specialization in a food source or behavioral changes, changes in mating calls, or mating behavior, anything like that can lead to speciation. And if they live in the same environment, and also if they don't, but it's more interesting if they do, we can think about reproductive isolation, which means that the groups of individuals are not capable anymore of mating and producing viable fertile offspring. Viable means that it can survive until it becomes an adult, and fertile means that it can have babies. So reproductive isolation means that individuals from these two groups cannot make babies that will grow up to become adults, or when they become adults, they themselves cannot have babies. And this reproductive isolation can happen two ways, and those are the very fun words. Pre-zygotic isolation or post-zygotic isolation. So zygotic means from the zygote, which is that very first cell that appears when an egg is fertilized by a sperm cell. And a pre-zygotic isolation is the kind of reproductive isolation that does not allow for a zygote to be made. So you don't get a zygote. That's why it's pre-zygotic. And that can be, for instance, if they have different mating calls or mating habits, and therefore they cannot mate. 
or if they mate for some reason that can be that their sex organs so their genitals do not fit properly or the egg and the sperm cell do not have the same receptors anything like that that does not allow for zygote to come to be on the other hand the postzygotic isolation is when you do get a zygote but it either does not develop so you have a miscarriage or the adult that comes from that zygote is not fertile. One classical example is mules, who are from the breeding of horses and donkeys. And mules themselves, even though they clearly exist in an adult form, they cannot have babies. So that's a form of postzygotic isolation. So let's keep on on evolution. And the next thing is a selective pressure. And that's pretty straightforward, probably. I don't know. I hope. Which is basically any pressure onto an organism. Maybe it's caused by the climate or something else that's not a living being or by other living beings that create conditions to which a given phenotype, so a given form of those organisms, has higher survival and reproductive rate than the others. So anything that creates a difference in survival or reproductive success between the individuals of a group. Like keeping yourself warm because the temperatures vary is something that can cause an individual to survive better than others and therefore temperature would be a selective pressure. Being eaten is something that definitely makes it hard for you to stay alive and have babies. Therefore predators are also a form of selective pressure. So, the selective pressure is, basically, what takes us to natural selection. So, natural selection is the difference in survival and reproductive rates between organisms due to characteristics of those organisms in relation to their environment. Just like the selective pressures will change according to the environment you're at, natural selection will also be different, because natural selection is what selects whatever is more fit to an environment and the key again is that it's fit to that environment there is no fit as a whole nothing is fit to everything in contrast to natural selection we have artificial selection and that's the kind of selection that we do we as humans do to everything around us so to crops and pets so if you have cats or dogs or guinea pigs rabbits rats mice, hamsters, maybe a goat, I don't know. Everything that we can have as pets. Or that we should have as pets, I don't know how to phrase that. Everything alive that humans have had around them for a long time and that are important for us have been through artificial selection. We've selected trees to give us more fruits, grasses to give us more grains, and all of that. Just like we selected the animals, we selected dogs for different things, cats for being cute. Well, had selected themselves, but we'll have a whole episode about that. So, all of that is artificial selection. Another kind of selection is sexual selection. We have talked about that when we talked about feathers, and here it is again. Sexual selection is the kind of selection that's related to mating behaviors. Either between members of the same sex, so they compete with each other for access to the other sex, or for space, anything like that. Or they can happen between the sexes, usually by choice. So when one sex chooses the other, so usually females choose the males, that's also a kind of selection. 
As you can probably guess, sexual selection leads to an increase in the number of offspring that an organism can have. But it does not necessarily mean that the organisms will have it easier to survive. Just remember the peacocks and the giant tail feathers that make it hard for it to fly. But it does mean that when it comes to either choosing or keeping mates, they will have an advantage. Now we go to some very weird types of selection. The first one is the frequency-dependent selection. Basically, that is selection for hipsters, let's say. It means that when something becomes too common, it either becomes more or less selected. Usually what happens is you have two forms of an organism and once one of them becomes more common, the predators will get used to hunting it and the other form, which is less frequent, will be better hidden. Since the one in the lower frequency is better hidden because the predators are not used to hunting it, it has an advantage over the other one. So it starts becoming more common. But once it's way more common than the very first form, the predators start looking into it as its main source of food. And then the other one will become the one that's beneficial. So you are always on this seesaw where being the less frequent is the more advantageous, but then you start having more of it and it becomes more frequent and then the other form becomes the less frequent and therefore that's the one that has the higher fitness and then woof, 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 and then you go like that forever or you can go like that forever or at least for a very long time forever is way too long that's a little weird one right but i'll try to make a nice figure for you guys to put on the blog finally the other cool type cool weird type of selection that i like is group selection and that means that the selection happens for the group as a whole and not for the individual. And usually attributed to group selection is altruism. So anything that's not necessarily beneficial to the individual, but is beneficial to the group, like taking care of your siblings' babies. So this selects characteristics that are beneficial for the whole group, but then that has to happen in relation to another group that does not have this characteristic. This hypothesis does not have the best evidence to support it. It's very rare and scattered, but still a nice concept. So I would like to keep it here. Okay, so what I think might be my last evolutionary concept is vestigial structures. And that means structures that have either been reduced or usually are reduced because they no longer have a function in an organism. And one example that I already gave in homology, but I can give it again, is our appendices. They don't appear to have a function right now, even though that has been highly contested. Apparently, the appendices does have some important functions, but it is reduced compared to other mammals. So it could be a vestigial structure. So it's a structure that is usually reduced and that doesn't seem to have a function anymore in the organism where we see them, but it was important for their ancestors. Another example of that is hip bones and leg bones in whales or snakes. So hind legs sometimes appear on snakes and you can see the bones in whale carcasses, but they have no use in either of those organisms because they don't use hind legs. But they are still there, so they are vestigial. Cool, right? And that's how we can see a lot of relations in biology. When you see things that look like they are there for no apparent reason, but when you look 
at the evolutionary history of that, you see that, well, that's there because it was already there. Getting rid of things in biology and evolution is quite hard because it's not something that you're doing manually. It's a series of random mutations that lead to some changes that are beneficial. And sometimes those changes are not as perfect as we would do them. And perfect here has a lot of quotation marks. They are not as perfect as we would do them if we were doing them knowing where we want to go. Because again, evolution does not have an end goal. Next time you go to a museum, if they have whale bones, some species of whales have the hind leg bones. You could look for it. Maybe the species they have in the museum close to you has them. It would be very cool to see. Yeah, there will be a third episode on words. Maybe I'll leave it for later. I'll do the wings first, and then I'll do the third one on words. Just so I don't kill you guys. It's just because biology has so many nice words. Come on. Now we get to a series of words that are actually related to genetics. And genetics is very important for evolution. We will talk on that later. But let's start with the genetic code. You probably heard about it. And it sounds very hard. It is very hard. But let's try to make it simple. Basically, to tell you about the genetic code, first, I have to tell you about codons, nucleotides, and amino acids. So, three things, and then I'll be able to explain it. Nucleotides are the base unit of DNA and RNA. I'll talk in a minute about what they are. But the nucleotides are molecules that have a sugar, a phosphate, so something based on phosphorus, and a nitrogenated base. And those nitrogenated bases are the important bit because there are four different types of them, the A, T, C, G that you probably heard somewhere. And they are the ones that basically have the history of or G written in them with those four letters. And the codons are a sequence of three nucleotides, okay? So three of those letters, either in DNA or RNA, that will tell your cell which amino acid to use when it's making a protein. And the amino acids are also organic molecules, but they are the building blocks of proteins. There are 20 different types of amino acids, and by recombining them, we can make any protein. Finally, the genetic code, which is what I promised, is the relationship between those codons, so those three nucleotide sequences, and the amino acids they tell your cell to use. The genetic code is redundant because if you do a combination of four bases in pairs of three with repetition, you will see that the number is way bigger than 20. I don't know how much it is, but it's bigger than 20. And that is good because it means that sometimes, even if you miss a letter, you can still get the same amino acid. So the impact of mutations can be lessened. There will be a figure on the blog. Go check it out. Okay, so what is DNA and RNA? I just talked about them. Let's tell you what they are. So DNA is the deoxyribonucleic acid. You don't ever have to memorize that unless you're going to work with it, but then it's on you. And basically that's a biological molecule, so an organic molecule that has very long chains and has all the genetic information about whatever organism it's in. The DNA can be arranged into chromosomes, which are this double strand of DNA that has a given sequence of genes. And you probably know that us humans have 46 chromosomes in our cells. 
And just so you know, if you get all the DNA in one cell of the human body and just stretch it very, very much, well, stretch it to its fullest and put one chromosome at the end of the next one, you get a molecule that's 1.8 meters high. That is taller than I am. I will grant that I'm not very tall, but still, it's a lot of DNA. Very, very, very well packed inside each of our cells. That is pretty cool. And I hope you find it really cool as well. Worst case scenario, you now have a fun fact that the DNA inside a cell, if stretched and put end-to-end, -end, gets to 1.8 meters. Finally, we get RNA, which is the ribonucleic acid. You probably noticed that it's very similar to deoxyribonucleic acid. That's because the molecules are very similar. It also forms chains. Usually those chains are shorter though, because RNA is less stable than DNA. And RNA is what will be used to tell your cell which proteins to produce. Not only that, RNA can also be involved directly in chemical reactions in your cell. So it's a very cool molecule. So I told you what chromosomes are, this double strand of DNA with a given sequence of genes. Let me tell you then what homologous chromosomes are. So homo here means uh, similar, so the same. And it means that those chromosomes are of the same type. They have the same structure and the same sequence of genes. You probably know, maybe you don't, I don't know, from our chromosomes inside our cells, half of it came from our biological father and half of it from our biological mother. Since we got chromosomes from both, we got two times each chromosome. One time came from your bio mom and one time it came from your bio dad. And the pairs that have the same structure and gene sequence are the homologous chromosomes. Usually, structurally at least, those chromosomes are quite similar. Very hard to tell them apart, the homologous ones. There is one pair that if you are a biological male, it's quite different. And those are the sex chromosomes. So sex chromosomes are the chromosomes that have genes related to sexual determination. In the case of humans, that specific gene is on the Y chromosome. So unless there is a Y, the fetus will become female, a biofemale. But there are other species where you actually have a gene that determines femaleness. And without it, all fetuses become males. Sex chromosomes are really, really crazy. There can be so many different types that we will have a whole episode just to talk about them. But the concept is too cool to not be on this list. And then, since we have sex chromosomes, we also have autosomes. And autosomes is any chromosome that's not a sex chromosome. Probably you already saw a figure or an image of chromosomes where it's an X and that's because the chromosome is duplicated. That part with the X is waist, so the part that's in is a centromere. That's the region of the chromosome that's involved in the proper separation of those two sides of the X during cell division. So, in our chromosomes, I already told you, there are sequences of genes, but what is a gene? A gene is a unit of genetic heritage. Usually, they are in a very specific place in a chromosome or in a genome. And basically, they are just a sequence of DNA that can be transcribed and has a function on the cell or organism, or produces something that has a function in the cell or organism. 
genes usually have some variety so they can be slightly different even though they are mostly the same and are in the same region of homologous chromosomes and those are alleles alleles are just like varieties of a gene think t-shirts you can have exactly the same t-shirt but one is green and the other is blue those would be alleles the classical example is in peas because a lot of the genetics we know started with peas and peas can be either green or yellow and those are two alleles for the same gene which determines the color of the peas one simple way to divide alleles is between recessive and dominant alleles so the recessive ones are an allele that does not show up if you have the dominant one around so to see the effects of a recessive allele, the individual needs to only have recessive alleles for that gene, while a dominant allele is the one that overrides the recessive one. So their names are pretty straightforward in that sense. Next, I would like to tell you one of my very favorite words, which is a pseudogene, which is basically a gene, but not. It's a sequence in your DNA that looks like a gene, but for some reason, it's not. So it's not functional. And one fun thing to think about is it's not functional as far as we know. Because it is very hard to study genes. And they can do a lot of things that like 20 years ago or when we found out about genes, we didn't know were possible. So what we see as a pseudogene right now in 10, 20, 50 years might be something that was found out to be super important. So that's really cool, for me at least, to think about. Pseudogenes are just genes that we don't know what they are for, so we make it look like they are nothing. <laughs> because if I can't understand it, it's not really there. It's not really a gene, you know? It's a pseudogene. I think that's pretty funny. And yeah, I'm pretty sure us as biologists are going to have that come back in, your, in our faces at some time. At least I hope so. Okay, so now it's two words that are the best words in cell biology because of what they mean not necessarily the words itself and that is transcription and translation transcription is basically looking at your dna and making rna from it so when your cell gets the dna looks at a gene and transcribes it into an rna that rna then goes outside of the nucleus and can be translated and it's translated into a protein isn't that crazy? So you have the DNA that is the template for RNA that is the template for proteins. That's crazy. I love it. My favorite analogy for it is imagine you have a very, very, very old and very good cookbook that's in your family for a thousand years, let's say. You probably don't want to go with that book to the kitchen because the kitchen is that place where eggs can fall into the book and flour is definitely going to get into it but you still want to make the recipes that are there. So the first thing you do is transcribe whatever recipes in the book and you want to do into a sheet of paper. And that sheet of paper you take to the kitchen and you follow its instructions to do, let's say, a cake. That would be the same process as transcription and translation in the cell. The transcription, so getting the old cookbook and putting it into a sheet of paper, would be taking the DNA template and transcribing it into RNA. 
and the translation would be getting the sheet of paper and making it into a cake. Not the sheet of paper itself, but its instructions. And that's the same thing when we get an RNA, well, when our cells from an RNA can make a protein. That's different. Think about it. There is, if you go through my Twitter, it's not very big, you will find a figure of that in a mug. <laughs> it's very nice. If you want to give me that mug, hey, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> okay, next is a funny word or fun word. Next is a fun word, which is alternative splicing. And that's exactly what it means. It's just alternatively cutting things. In this case, the RNA. Remember that RNA that we use to make the translation? You can cut and paste it according to specific instructions that are in the RNA itself. And the same RNA can be cut and pasted in different ways. Those different ways and doing it to get those different forms of RNA is alternative splicing. That's what I'm currently working on. So I really, at this moment, it's really close to my heart. <laughs> okay, to finish, two more words. Genomics and transcriptomics. So both of those are sub-areas of biology and they are basically studying the organisms from some sort of genetic material. Genomics studies the organism from their full genetic material, so from their genomes. While transcriptomics is the study of those RNAs of an organism. So the thing the organism uses to make proteins, those little RNAs are what transcriptomics is going to look at to try to understand the organisms better. Okay, I think that's enough for today. There will be one more with fun words. I don't know if it will be the next one, but it will be there. And that's it. So let me remember all the things I have to tell you to do. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Julia Heises. Then you can find the image of the transcription translation thing. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Give it five stars. Stay safe. That's the general thing. Stay safe, please. And I think that's it. Oh, go to the blog. Go to the blog, check it out. There will be better explanations to each word without me going around about it. And it will be fun. There will be figures. I really like figures. That's it. Stay safe. Have fun. And see you next time. Bye! Okay, I think there might be a third episode coming along. Because I'm already on almost 40 minutes of Raw. Um, thingy thing. And I'm not in the middle of where I wanted to be. Yay! Why do I talk so much? I don't know. I find these things very cool. I hope you'll find them too. Anyway, when the Homo genus diverged from chimps and bonobos, so the Pan genus, and yeah, two types of species. Speci spe it's hard talking so much. Okay? I like some concepts and I like to keep them around. <laughs>